You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Our last uh, subject is the role of education in promoting uh, the understanding and practice of Catholic social teaching. As we all know, there has been a lot of talk about ethics in recent years. Ethics courses abound in colleges, and at least one ethics course is offered in law schools, medical schools, and business schools. The professional schools often present students with dilemmas to study and resolve. The premise behind these courses is that knowledge of cases and principles, as well as critical thinking skills, are the linchpin of an ethical education. Universities hope to turn out ethical professionals, both by exposing students to the various ethical challenges and dilemmas in their profession, and by teaching them to think critically on the basis of certain principles. Augustine would find something missing in these efforts because of his understanding of what really moves people to act. That understanding is unmistakably revealed in one of the key passages in the Confession, where he says, oil poured over water is borne on the surface of the water. Water poured over oil sinks below the oil. It is by their weight that they are moved and seek their proper place. Things out of place are in motion. They come to their place and are at rest. My love is my weight. I am carried wherever I am carried by my love. This is from book 13, chapter 9. Now, before his conversion, Augustine was carried along by contradictory loves, desire for truth and wisdom and desire for sexual pleasure, desire for honor and acceptance by his friends, and desire for acceptance by God. He aspires to real friendship, but opts for unfriendly friendships, that is to say, friendships that lead him as a 16-year-old to behave badly in deference to peer pressure. Shortly before his conversion, he longs to unite his will to God's will, but still prays, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. And he says to Olypius that the learned are more successful in seeking God than we are with our doctrine sine corde, heartless learning. He knows that he should turn back to God with his whole heart and soul, but can't make the decision to move himself. Finally, his love for higher things drives out the love for the lower things, and he is able to overcome the paralysis in his soul. He responds to that mysterious voice repeating, take and read, take and read, and picks up St. Paul's epistle to the Romans and reads, make not provision for the flesh in its desires. This exhortation touches him, and he is able to abandon his bad loves and turn wholeheartedly toward God. In order to shed more light on what happened to Augustine during his gradual conversion, I would like to highlight two excerpts from his sermons. Here is the first. Quote, think of ordinary human love. Think of it as the hand of the soul. If it is holding one thing, it can't hold another. To be able to hold something it's given, it must let go of what it is already holding. God says to you, here, hold what I am giving you. You are reluctant to let go of what you are holding already. You cannot receive what is being offered you. End quote. Augustine hasn't been able to receive God's word and grace because of what he was clutching in the hand of his soul. Lust, self-satisfaction, desire for honor, love of being accepted and praised by his friends, 
the desire to accept responsibility for his sins, disdain for the simplicity of sacred scripture, etc. The second excerpt reads, do not remove cupidity or desire, but change it. Transfer your love. Break your fetters to earthly goods. Bind yourself to the creator. Change your love. Change your fear. Only good and bad loves make good and bad morals. Ever the passionate man, Augustine did not quash his desires, but redirected them to God and then was able to stop loving himself and others badly. Becoming more receptive, both by letting go of destructive desires and by developing new desires for truth and every other good thing, brought Augustine out of the depths of self-destruction into the light. Augustine goes so far as to say that we become what we love. A human being is such as his love. If you love the earth, you will be earth. Do you love God? Will you be God? What may I say? I don't dare speak on my own authority. Let us hear scripture. You are all gods and sons of the Most High. Love then unites us with whom and what we love. We become identified with what we love. Consequently, we will acquire self-knowledge through the observation of our loves. So if we ask Augustine how a person may come to love God, his answer is clear. He says, inquire where a person gets the ability to love God from, and absolutely the only discovery you will make is it is because God first loved him. He has given us himself, the one we have loved. He has given us what to love with. This answer, of course, means that Christian faith is at the basis of the love of God. We know by faith that God has demonstrated his love by sending his son to liberate us from sin and death through his death on the cross and resurrection. So whatever clears the way for faith and causes it to grow is the sine qua non of the generation of new and better loves. For example, in the Confessions, Augustine describes how the study of philosophy, the overcoming of his prejudices against scripture, the dispelling of his ignorance about the Catholic Church, the prayers and other efforts of his mother and friends and his own personal sufferings all helped him to come back to the faith of his childhood. What does this all mean for educating students to take justice seriously? Simply stated, the hands of their souls must be free to receive the love and knowledge of justice, as well as the knowledge of faith and the other virtues. If we are all carried by our loves, Augustine is perfectly logical in arguing that Christians must be educated to know and love all the virtues. The personal experience of suffering by the innocent is one way of generating a love for justice. Two other indispensable approaches to the same end are one, an education to know and love the whole faith, including the creeds, the church, and the sacraments, morality, and prayer, and an education to ponder the thoughts of great authors on matters pertaining to justice and injustice. As John Paul II has argued, the way to the heart is often through the mind. Think of the influence of Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago and weaning French intellectuals from their love of communism. Augustine's concept of love not only explains what moves individuals to act, but also helps to understand the behavior of nations. Let us see how he reflects on the definition of a republic given by Scipio, a character in Cicero's Republic. Scipio says that a republic is the affair of a people and then defines a people as a fellowship of a multitude united through a consensus concerning right and a sharing of advantage. 
Augustine comments that there can be no consensus concerning right without justice. In Augustine's radical formulation, justice requires the order in the soul. Reason rules the vices and is in turn subject to God through the practice of the Christian virtues. So if there's no justice in the individuals, without doubt, neither is there any in a fellowship of human beings which consists of such men. So without justice so understood, there can be no consensus concerning right and thus no real republic. This brings us to Augustine's second and more realistic but less comprehensive definition of a republic, a fellowship of a multitude of rational beings united through sharing in an agreement about what it loves. It is a better people if it agrees in loving better things, a worse one if it agrees in loving worse things. Otherwise stated, there can be various levels of solidarity among the citizens of a regime. Augustine's reflections suggest that the forging of a consensus concerning right is the most important act of the body politic. The quality of solidarity in a republic depends on the nature of that consensus. And I ask pardon of my hearers for repeating what Augustine says here about these two definitions of a republic. I consider this to be very important and very helpful in understanding various aspects of Catholic social teaching. So if Augustine is correct, the mores of the citizens are the crucial determinant. If the mores are corrupt, citizens will not support social reform at home or abroad unless their self-interest is somehow engaged. Citizens who have a disordered love of goods and freedom will not be inclined to support public initiatives requiring self-sacrifice and the practice of the virtues. So anything done to elevate the loves of citizens will be a contribution to justice in a particular society. This means that individuals, families, schools, universities, voluntary groups, churches, political persuasion, and wise laws will all contribute to the forming and deforming the loves of citizens. Whatever these citizens love will decisively affect the attainment of justice in a particular society. So if universities want students to become citizens focused on justice and everything they do, they must educate them to love what is good. And this is no easy task because as Augustine said in the Confessions, we want what we love to be the truth. It takes great effort and God's grace to let truth determine our loves. In addition to carry out this vision, universities will have to hire professors who love their faith and love their students. Hence the importance of ex corde ecclesiae, John Paul II's apostolic exhortation on universities. And we now turn to that. In a recent article on the Catholic University, a non-Catholic professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania, Alan Charles Kors, lamented the decline of Catholic higher education in the United States. He believes that thriving Catholic institutions make an indispensable contribution to American life in general and to the life of Catholics in particular. He rightly claims that the Catholic tradition embodies the very foundation of the civilization of the West, the meaning of Athens and Jerusalem. Catholic universities contribute to academic life by preserving the belief that freedom and dignity have an ontological status that is a precondition of our full humanity. Catholics, he argues, need authentic Catholic universities in order to make an informed choice to be a Catholic. I would add that Catholics especially need Catholic universities in order to receive a thorough liberal education that includes a serious study of philosophy and theology in addition to the usual other subjects. 
when we saw in our introduction, you know, how important this kind of liberal education, study of literature, history, political science, etc., is for the understanding of Catholic social teaching. So let us look at Ex Cordiae Ecclesiae and see what kind of vision John Paul II has for Catholic universities. His document is relatively short, 37 pamphlet pages. It has a brief introduction followed by part one on the identity and mission, part two on general norms, and a one-page conclusion. The six-page introduction begins with the assertion that the Catholic university is born from the heart of the church. That's ex corde ecclesiae. In other words, the Catholic university emerged from the life of the church and helps the church accomplish its mission. He begins to describe the purpose of Catholic higher education in these words. It is the honor and responsibility of a Catholic university to consecrate itself without reserve to the cause of truth the whole truth about nature, man, and God. By means of a kind of universal humanism, a Catholic university is completely dedicated to the research of all aspects of truth in their essential connection with the supreme truth who is God. In a university directed to truth, philosophy and theology play an architectonic role in reconciling the claims of faith and reason and in promoting the integration of various university disciplines. In the early church, St. Augustine promoted a dialogue between faith and reason in his confessions in the city of God. According to Ernest Fortin, the medieval university, in fact, was originally created for this purpose, that of reconciling the truths that come to us from divine revelation with the philosophical wisdom of Greece and Rome. By and large, the new institution sought to promote the twin goals of classical education namely the formation of the human being and the citizen, but with the understanding that these goals would henceforth be subordinated to the larger goal of forming Christians. These three terms sum up the ideals to which it was dedicated, humanity, civility, and Christianity. Humanitas, civilitas, Christianitas. It is interesting to note, writes Bishop John Doherty of Scranton, that Vatican II proposes the same concrete goals for Christian education as the medieval university, humanitas and civilitas from a Christian perspective. Vatican II's exact words are these, true education is directed toward the formation of the human person in view of his final end and simultaneously the good of the societies of which he is a member and in the duties of which as an adult he will have a share. And that's from the Declaration on Christian Education, number one. The truth is sought and taught, says John Paul, so that the young and all those learning to think rigorously may act rightly and thus better serve human society. Truth, right behavior, better service. Nowadays, service to others is often presented as the distinguishing characteristic of a Catholic university, but without linking that service to the prior task, of seeking the truth and achieving some order in one's soul through prayer, a sacramental life, acceptance of the Catholic creeds, and the practice of Christian morality. It seems naive to me and even Pelagian to think that Christ-like service can be informed and embraced without a foundation in Christian doctrine and a basis in learning. As I constantly tell my seminary students, serving others often requires knowledge laboriously acquired. Some used to tell me that they didn't need a lot of knowledge since they were going to be pastoral. In recent years, they haven't been saying this as much. Now, to accomplish its mission, 
to search for truth, the universities have to engage in continuous renewal, says John Paul. And such renewal requires a clear awareness that by its Catholic character, a university is made more capable of conducting an impartial search for truth, a search that is neither subordinated to nor conditioned by particular interests of any kind. This is a very important and thought-provoking statement, and no doubt puzzling to most Americans, including Catholics and especially intellectuals. A common opinion is that secular universities enjoy complete freedom to study the various disciplines, while Catholic universities, if they are really Catholic, have to exercise caution so as not to run afoul of church teaching. A more probing look reveals this fact. The tyranny of political correctness and or some narrow perspective often hinders open-minded study in some disciplines. For example, Law and political science are often studied without any attempt to deal with the question of justice. Psychology assumes that human beings are conditioned by genes or the environment. Philosophy cultivates the kind of critical thinking that cannot ever arrive at truth. Sometimes philosophy does that, but must keep raising questions. Theology balks at the notion that it cannot properly be done without reference to church teaching. The study of literature requires the reading of all books through the prism of some contemporary philosophical theory, and sociology accepts the fact-value distinction. You know, think of Harold Bloom recently gave his English library to a Catholic college in Vermont because he was upset at the way some of the professors in secular universities were studying literature. He thought they would be more open-minded in, you know, in this small Catholic school. Now, a Catholic university in line with ex cordia ecclesiae would not uncritically accept the reigning paradigm for studying a particular discipline. It would study a subject in a way most fruitful for the acquisition of truth. So if ex corde is correct, it doesn't make sense to argue that an institution must first become a university and then address its Catholic identity. The faith and the grand tradition, Catholic tradition, can actually help scholars gain a critical perspective on the weaknesses inherent in popular approaches to the study of the various disciplines. David Schindler, the editor of Communio, goes so far as to say, I do not think there can be a genuine Catholic university today without a thorough reflection on and a revision of the current self-understanding of the disciplines. Assumptions about the nature of the human person and of community life implicit in the disciplines may not be compatible with the teaching of Jesus Christ. No believing Christian, for example, could accept the denial of freedom in some schools of modern psychology or the neglect of justice by some political scientists and lawyers. Now, part one of Ex Corde begins with a list of the four essential characteristics of every Catholic university. It is taken word for word from the 1972 document of the Second International Congress of Delegates of Catholic Universities. One a Christian inspiration not only of individuals, but of the university community as such. Two, a continuing reflection in the light of the Catholic faith upon the growing treasury of human knowledge to which it seeks to contribute by its own research. Three, fidelity to the Christian message as it comes to us through the church. And four, an institutional commitment to the service of the people of God and of the human family in their pilgrimage to the transcendent goal, which gives meaning to life. The Catholic University must have these characteristics, ex corde maintains, if it is to address the great questions of society 
and culture. Now, in order for the university to do its proper work, Ex Corte says that it enjoys institutional autonomy and guarantees its members' academic freedom while safeguarding the rights of individuals and the community within the demands of the truth and the common good. Many would be surprised to realize that this emphasis on the freedom of the Catholic University is a theme of Ex Corte. They would not be surprised that the Pope elevates truth and the common good to the level of guidelines for the exercise of freedom. If interpreted sanely, this is a very good recommendation. Actually, every university limits speech in the name of rights, some notion of truth, and some version of the common good. When limitations are imposed in the name of the zeitgeist or political correctness, university life usually suffers. Turning now to the section, the mission of the service of a Catholic university, I will just direct your attention to a few points. The Catholic University has a duty to study the roots and causes of serious contemporary problems, such as the dignity of human life, the promotion of justice for all, the quality of personal and family life, and a new economic and political order that will better serve the human community at a national and international level. In addition, in the light of the predominant values and norms of modern society, the Catholic University in certain situations must have the courage to speak uncomfortable truths which do not please public opinion, but which are necessary to safeguard the true good of society, and even to try to communicate to society those ethical and religious principles which give full meaning to human life. Another ex corte formulation of this point is in the brief section on the gospel and culture. Catholic universities will attempt to discern the positive and negative aspects of diverse cultures and seek to discern and evaluate both the aspirations and contradictions of modern culture in order to make it more suited to the total development of individuals and peoples. Now this ex corte invitation to speak uncomfortable truths will be very difficult for Catholic universities who ardently desire to be accepted by public opinion and by their peers at secular universities. Some of these uncomfortable truths are Catholic teachings on the relation of law and morality, abortion, euthanasia, suicide, the death penalty, divorce, contraception, homosexuality, extramarital sexual relations, relativism, as well as the teachings on liberal education, the Catholic way of doing theology, marriage, family life, virtues, and the necessity of practicing virtue as a means of realistically promoting social justice and the common good. In order to accomplish this task of speaking uncomfortable truths, the Catholic University cannot become enamored of the zeitgeist or take its bearings by the way contemporary society defines its needs. On the contrary, as Father Ernest Fortin says, a Catholic education provides students with standards of judgment that ultimately are independent of the regime and the pervasive influence of its principles. In other words, the Catholic University teaches students to evaluate all aspects of the society in which they live on the basis of trans-political standards, that is, standards shaped by the faith and sound reasoning uninfluenced by the reigning opinions of the day. Today, it is so much more likely that Catholic universities will succumb to the reigning opinions, especially of secular intellectuals, because they are not doing a good job of preserving alternative opinions through the study of the grand Catholic tradition, ancient and foreign languages, and master works of philosophy and theology. 
So without this deep knowledge of the Catholic and philosophical traditions, Catholic universities will not be in a position to speak uncomfortable truths to contemporary society or to maintain their Catholic identity for that matter. We now turn to part two of Ex Corde, where the Pope discusses general norms which are based on and are a further development of the code of canon law and the complementary church legislation. These are valid for all Catholic universities in the world. Ex Corde also requires that these general norms be applied concretely at the local and regional level by Episcopal conferences. The essence of the norms are as follows. One, all aspects of life at a Catholic university must be informed by Catholic ideals, principles, and attitudes. Two, university authorities must establish a link with the church, at least by a voluntary institutional commitment. Three, every Catholic university is to make known its Catholic identity either in a mission statement or in some other appropriate document, unless authorized otherwise by the competent ecclesial authority. Four, freedom in research and teaching is recognized according to the principles and methods of each individual discipline. So as long as the rights of the individual and of the community are preserved within the demands of the truth and the common good. The responsibility for maintaining and strengthening the Catholic identity of the university rests primarily with the university itself. Six, the competent authority at the university is bound by Canon 810 of the Code of Canon Law, which says it is the responsibility of the authority who is competent in accord with the statutes to provide for the appointment of teachers to Catholic universities who besides their scientific and pedagogical suitability are also outstanding in their integrity of doctrine and probity of life. When these qualities are lacking, they are to be removed from their positions in accord with the procedures set forth in the statutes. And then it goes on, there are other norms which we do not have time to go over today. But just permit me to conclude with this remark. He says, in order to seek the truth and carry on a dialogue with the various ways of looking at the most important things, students and faculty need a curriculum that includes not only the traditional disciplines, but also serious study of masterworks or great books, especially works of theology, philosophy, literature, and history. Without studying the deepest thinkers of the past, faculty and students will almost necessarily look at things from the perspective of the current reigning opinions. The laborious task of unlearning, of really thinking for oneself, requires meditation on the works of the great authors. Ex Corde, I must add, does not specifically recommend the study of masterworks or languages for that matter, but both these activities, in my judgment, are necessary if the Catholic University is going to carry out effectively its proper mission. The Pope concludes his apostolic constitution with this dramatic statement. The mission that the church, with great hope, entrusted to Catholic universities, holds a cultural and religious meaning of vital importance because it concerns the very future of humanity. The renewal requested of Catholic universities will make them better able to respond to the task of bringing the message of Christ to man, to society, and to the various cultures. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.